Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on the Criterion Collection and its catalog of important films. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we hop the pond with Sam Peckinpah to discuss Straw Dogs. Taking its title from the Tao Te Ching's discussion on ancient Chinese ceremonials, Straw Dogs is the controversial 1971 adaptation of Gordon M. Williams' novel, The Siege of Trencher's Farm. Jettisoning most of its source material story, director Peckinpah and co-screenwriter David Zila Goodman's script chronicles the events in a remote English village as American mathematician David Sumner, played by Dustin Hoffman, and his nubile British wife, Amy, enacted by Susan George, take up residence in her family home. Soon after arriving, however, the quiet countryside gives way to menace as Amy's former boyfriend, Charlie, and his friends encroach upon the couple and their homestead. Feelings of dread and despair follow the story as aggression and violence build towards a chilling climax. Sam Pakaba brings his trademark craftsmanship and unflinching vision of violence into focus in a film that has been highly polarizing throughout the nearly 50 years since its release. Subjected to censorship and vigorous debate immediately upon release, Straw Dogs dives into the blackness of man's soul to study masculinity, society, and sexuality. The film's power retains its potency, and its influence continues to manifest itself in cinema to this day. Join Matt and me as we try to find our way home. So, Matt, as we begin our discussion tonight, I thought maybe we could start by just talking about Sam Peckinpah himself before we get into this movie in particular. Uh, I'm just curious, what other films of his have you seen? Do you have a lot of familiarity with him as a director? Uh, I think pretty much just The Wild Bunch. I, I really haven't seen a ton of his films. Obviously, he has a, a reputation for for violence in his pictures, and that seems to be how he's remembered, which I think is kind of a shame. Um, I, I think some people see his films as exploitative, but I think there's a lot more going on there, especially in this one. Uh, so I, I don't have a huge experience with this catalog, but... Um, uh, this and, and the Wild Bunch seem to be seem to be the most um, notable films. Yeah, he kind of has a cult following. I would say he's not a director that's endured the way of like a Kubrick yeah. of someone who is working around the same time has endured. But there are people who I think are very devoted to Peckinpah. His career is pretty extensive, but it also is pretty short. He died very young. I think he died at about. 59 years old or thereabouts uh, from, I don't know if it was from alcohol or uh, drugs. He was, I know, very heavily addicted to both. So I, I think he just had health complications that compounded over his life from the drug abuse. Uh, but his film output was quite impressive. I, I've got a little bit more experience. Obviously, he's well known for Westerns, The Wild Bunch, and Straw Dogs are probably his most famous films. But uh, something like Ride the High Country is another of his films that's very well known. Uh, the um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is another real famous film of his. And uh, he made also Cross of Iron uh, in the late 70s, one of his last, if maybe not his last films to be completed. Uh, that was a, a World War II film about Stalingrad. And so he's obviously had a very long career, but like you said, uh, heavily violent for the most part in his films, and think that's the the main takeaway people have for him, and understandably so. But at the same time, perhaps simplistically so. Yeah. Because I think he does tend to have more profound thoughts about violence and a more interesting commentary on it than people might often associate with him. Yeah, I would agree, and and this film really is. A great example of that you know I, I never felt like he treated violence as uh you know a means to titillate uh the like maybe like tarantino does uh at times i felt like he always understood the gravity of violence the the complexity of violence the darkness of violence uh he wasn't afraid to graphically depicted of course but it was a means to an end and and this film is definitely a primary example of that yeah it, it really is i think 
This, uh, perhaps more than any of his other films, I think gets at the harrowing nature of violence. Obviously, The Wild Bunch is his most celebrated film, and it probably is his best film. Uh, and it was famous for its use of slow motion uh, and very graphic violence at the same time. But I think this film gets to a kind of more austere reality than his other work does. It doesn't feel very flashy. There is some slow motion in it. There is some uh, very inventive editing that takes place, but never to the point that it seems to distract. It does seem to be very austere in its depiction of its themes, its, its characters, and its violence when he comes to talking about or when he comes to directing Straw Dogs here. Yeah, and, and when the film eventually gets to that point, it's it's really an exhausting process, not only for the audience but for the characters. It's Again, no one is reveling in the violence. It's The violence is something that's feared. It's something that's avoided. But at the same time, we know it's inevitable, uh, really from the opening frames of this film. I mean, I, watching it again, I was so struck at how quickly the tension is set up in this film. It's pretty extraordinary, actually. Just the opening few minutes really managed to establish the entire world in uh, pretty intricate detail. You know, we're introduced to the main characters. We really get the sense of the, the small town dynamic and how insular and how kind of suffocating that is. Uh, we we feel kind of there's this sexual tension going on already that plays throughout the film. Uh, it's really an efficient little exercise in filmmaking right from the get-go that uh, that really struck me this time around, just, just how quickly everything is set up, uh, how efficiently that happens. I'd agree. I actually, I'll go a little further. I think it's even within just the very opening credits, how much it creates a sense of dread or foreboding. Yeah, the music uh, Just that opening shot, which the music, yeah, Jerry Fielding's score is very good at this. But also that opening shot, it starts with everything out of focus. And you see these tiny little figures moving around. And then eventually it comes into focus. And it's, yeah, black and white, so it's stark in terms of the color. And then it, it comes to the focus. You see it's little kids playing in a graveyard. And so you have two kind of very morbid things going on. This, just the sense of a graveyard being the setting for play, which I think becomes very much a, a commentary on the film itself. The film is looking at sooner or later we're all going to die. And we're just playing along in this world until that reality finally hits us. And then the other is that it does have this sense of these figures being almost like ants. Right at the start, you know, it really does have this kind of sense of, uh, I wouldn't know if I'd say this film's nihilistic. It's pretty close to nihilistic, but it certainly yeah. is pessimistic, right? I mean, this is one of the bleakest portrayals of humanity and of uh, society that I think has ever been put on film. And uh, it doesn't hide back or hold, pull back from that at all. Yeah, it really feels like a distillation of some of the worst attributes of humanity, right? And it's kind of place in this pressure cooker and I, all the all the you know all the positivity is really boiled off here and uh, you said it approaches nihilism i mean i, I think it even uh goes right headlong into it at times but well, between this film and hot fuzz i i'm definitely afraid of the english countryside at this point <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you see somebody with a bear trap, get far, far away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, if anyone's ever lived in a small town or had experience in a small town, this really kind of dials up those attributes to 11, right? So this whole idea of everyone knows everybody, everyone's kind of in everybody's business, everybody knows who was involved with who in, in terms of relationships, and everyone's kind of carrying around their baggage and and there's this undercurrent of cynicism or jealousy or or uh, drug abuse or alcohol abuse, especially alcohol in this film. There's a whole lot of drinking going on in this film. Uh, again, it's all those elements you kind of think of, you know, the worst of, of small towns uh, really distilled down and amplified in such a way that uh, Dustin Hoffman really has no idea what he's getting into. You know, he has this... Uh, idyllic sort of vision of of this cabin that he'll 
that will help foster his uh, blossoming genius, right? And uh, little does he know that it's it's going to be probably the most traumatic <laughs> series of events in his entire life. Uh, it, it it's, it, but at the same time, it, it's quite organic. Uh, I, I think the film is pretty brilliant in terms of how it really kind of slowly eases us into uh, just that really bonkers ending in terms of the level of violence. Uh, it, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel exploitative, uh, in terms of the depiction of violence. It doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Again, it's set up really from that opening scene. There's just great tension here and we know something bad is going to happen. We just don't know what quite yet. I agree. I think you're, you know, the point you make about how it depicts a small town is really important. It does, I think, get at a certain accuracy. Obviously, there's a little bit of uh, condensing that takes place in terms of trying to relate to us very quickly the attributes of a small town, uh, because you have to obviously move this thing through in a narrative fashion. But it does do a nice job of establishing this town in a seemingly organic way, introducing us to key characters. Obviously, there's other characters that we don't really know about, but we get to know enough about certain characters. And I think it it conveys, as you said, that sense of people being in one another's business, being very much aware of everything that's going on, but also being deliberately naive and ignorant about things. Yeah, That's, I think, especially the case uh, in this subplot where you have the, the character of the uh, the child molester Henry Niles, uh, you know, who prior to the film starts, has obviously been kind of seen as uh, in the town as a as a danger, a threat. But you know, he's been allowed to be uh, let loose, and he's under the custody and care of his brother. But there is the uh, the family, the Hedden family, that uh, has the sexually curious daughter. I guess we could say Janice. And the father, Tom, who is the most kind of, at least immediately, it seems to be the most violent and threatening character. He's very drunk and prone to fits of rage in the midst of the bar, right? Uh, is totally unaware of his daughter's own promiscuity, right? The way she's kind of presenting herself to Henry Niles, as well as the way she presents herself to Dustin Hoffman as, as David. So I think uh, it also captures that element, which is fascinating, that it, it captures both the fact that People are in everybody's business, but not in, uh, are, are also deliberately unaware of things in their own backyard. Yeah, there's definitely a, an ignorance, and whether it's willful or, or legitimate, I guess, is up for debate. Um, I, I, I guess you could say a lot of these characters could come across as cliched, especially as as just small town vagrants, right? And the film really isn't afraid to kind of veer into some of those um cliches and it doesn't come across as as uh having a lack of of um honesty to it i guess i i don't feel like peck and paw is making fun of these people or belittling this these people or or saying like all small towns are just dens of iniquity you know but uh, at the same time, he's just, he's really not afraid to say, okay, there are a lot of small towns out there where people just don't have enough to do. They don't have enough purpose in their life, and that leads to a lot of bad things, you know, uh, alcoholism, et cetera. So that's definitely not avoided here. But it's interesting, you know, uh, Henry Niles, so David Warner, of course, plays Henry Henry Niles, and I could think he was uncredited in this film, which is kind of strange. But David Warner, a very famous British actor, went on to do a lot of things, um, including an appearance in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, but I'll leave that alone. Uh, <laughs> he's, I thought I think it fit uh, the fact that he was in Tron. Oh, yeah, that too, of course. that That's his <laughs> most memorable performance. Uh, we all remember him from that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He does a good job here. I, you know, the acting across the board is really strong. And, and we, you know, we haven't talked about Dustin Hoffman or Susan George yet here. I, I imagine we will, but it's a pretty, pretty convincing cast. And everyone really holds their own for sure. 
Well, I think you, you, you talked about cliche. I'm not sure if I would say that I feel like a characters are in this are cliched. They are generic in the sense that they are very much of a genre piece, right? And so you have uh, the outsider in David, uh, the man who comes into the outside town. That's that's a very common genre and, and, and plot thread, right? And then you have his young wife, uh, who's a little bit of a sex kitten. Uh, that's kind of a type of character that you see. So I could see how it appears almost like a cliche, but I feel like the casting and the direction of the performances is what prevents them from going into the realm of cliche. It actually brings more depth and meaning into them. And so maybe this is a good time just to delve into this cast uh, and how these different characters play out. Obviously, we've kind of indicated what the story is. It's uh, David Sumner is the mathematician uh, from America. He's got a grant that allows him to work on writing a book, and he's got himself set up in just this little small country place that his wife Amy, uh, her family had owned, and now they're just there all by themselves. And very quickly, he becomes sort of uh, the subject of a passive-aggressive kind of attack from her former boyfriend, Charlie, played by Del Henny, and then his friends, some of whom are working uh, on the the barn at the at the farmstead. And so it becomes very clear there's going to be a tension here between these different characters. Uh, I think the real the great thing is the actors all bring complexity to each part. And perhaps the casting of Hoffman and George in particular is is really the key to the success here because they don't seem like they should be a couple that would work together. And indeed, you get the sense this is a relationship that's really not sustainable. He's very much the academic, the intellectual. She's very much this carefree, kind of silly, almost person. She's very childlike. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, the scene where she's chewing the gum is a perfect example of that, right? She's, she's sitting in his office. He's trying to work. She comes in. She chews gum. She kicks her feet up. He kind of is distracted uh, by her. But you can tell he's, he's attracted to her. And so you get the sense that this is a very superficial relationship between the two of them that's not going to really last. And that, I think, brings, you know, they both bring such a, a flawed humanity to their characters where you can see very much how this relationship is going to go south with or without these external forces. Uh, but all these external forces accelerate what's going to happen there. Yeah, I, I would agree that the the main relationship does seem like a very immature relationship, right? It, as you said, there doesn't seem to be a deep connection there, a mature connection. There's kind of this childish sort of interplay between the two of them. Um, Dustin Hoffman's character is easily frustrated, and he's uh, kind of throws his little tantrums, and then um, Amy is very much wanting his attention. Uh, in, in, and you mentioned chewing the gum, you know, she, she has kind of this childish sort of demeanor about her, but in terms of cliches, you know, I was kind of referring more to the, the small town individuals versus, versus the main characters. Uh, I, I would agree with you that I think there's, there's quite a bit of nuance and depth to, uh, especially David Sumner and, and Amy and they're, it creates more tension and more suspense because you know something dark is coming and then you kind of know that their relationship isn't that strong. So you really wonder, you know, how are they going to be able to defend themselves, not only uh, emotionally and from a relationship standpoint, but just even physically. Uh, so this this film is very much about masculinity, right? And that's maybe something we can dive into more later. You know, uh, Dustin Hoffman tries pretty hard and pretty effectively to come across as kind of the meek sort of academic and a bit wimpy, but I, you know, Peckinpah is, he's not completely emasculating his character, right? Because he can't be at the end of the film, he has to kind of flip that savage switch to on, uh, to make it through. And I, I mean, maybe we just want to dive into that theme right now. I mean, what do you think Peckinpah is saying about masculinity in this film? Because that's definitely a primary focus here, a primary through line. 
Yeah, well, there's, yeah, no doubt about it. This is a film that's very interested in masculinity, as is a lot of Peckinpah's work. I mean, uh, you know, the the gang in The Wild Bunch very much is dealing with those themes. Uh, you see that come up recurring a theme for him as a director and as a writer. So naturally, this plays it out. I think this plays it out with more maturity than some of his other work even. Uh, I think, so the question to me is is this, who has the right interpretation over the character of David Sumner? Because it sounds like Dustin Hoffman and Peckinpah were at odds with each other about the character. Yeah. For Hoffman, he looked at Sumner as being really the kind of instigator of most of the violence. And I can see that interpretation making sense. And I might even be inclined to agree with that more than Peckinpah, where Peckinpah saw him as a man that was finally pushed and broke and an animalistic nature emerges out of it. Whereas I think uh, Hoffman sees him as being more of the instigator. The key scene to me in the film more than any other film uh, scene is actually the dinner uh, when he comes home after he's been at the pub. I guess it's not really a dinner. It's just kind of drinks. Uh, but the the vicar and his wife are in the house visiting with Amy David comes home with the uh, the major, the the magistrate for the town, and the natural thing would be to have this be just sort of a polite, hello, how are you? Oh, yes, you know, we'll come to the church event next weekend, that sort of thing. Nothing major would have to come from it, but David provokes and instigates a kind of uh, savagery in the conversation, right? I think that tells me that for Peckinpah, He's looking at masculinity as always being innately, or I say the film, maybe not Peckinpah himself, but the film is saying that masculinity is innately predatorial or territorial. It's it's pushing and it's it's trying to assert a dominance. I think that's a big part of what this film says about the masculine nature, and I, that even plays out with Charlie, right? Uh, the invasiveness into this home to reclaim Amy, right? Obviously, just sitting there in the first scene, we meet him talking to Amy in her car and saying how, yes, she used to want him and really being very quite forward with it and then, you know, finding ways to come and present himself as though he's this good, charming man to David, but really quietly making his way. Obviously, it's it's heavily applied that he may well have been the one that strangles the the, the summoner's cat and hangs it in the uh, bedroom closet. Uh, so, you know, you have these, these things, I think, where the film is trying to show us that the masculine nature is trying to be predatorial. It's, it's a hunter. That, that definitely seems to be the message here, right? And I think that that's... It's interesting to interpret this as David being the instigator, I guess I never really thought about that. The, the scene with the vicar, the point there is well taken. He does become fairly predatorial in that scene because he's obviously threatened by religion or Christianity specifically. And uh, he's very much the uh, science oriented uh, individual, right? The one that just cannot reconcile religion with science. At least that seems to be the message that's coming across. And yeah, he is quite hostile toward the vicar, even though they're just making a friendly visit. Uh, well, and another thing that's interesting about that scene is the vicar actually doesn't seem terribly offended by it, and maybe he's kind of used to that. But he gets the message and just kind of calls it a night and goes home, but he doesn't really get upset about it per se. Uh, so there, there are aggressive tendencies in David. Yeah, it's actually kind of a funny scene. Just to, sorry to interrupt there, but it's funny because the way the vicar responds to David's aggression is in many ways the way David responds to Charlie and the other men as they clearly have signs of aggression towards him. Yeah. Where he kind of cowers to it. And you know maybe he convinces himself of this idea that, well, I'm a... I'm a pacifist. I, I'm I'm better than these things. I'm not a brute. I'm, you know, I'm just going to kind of through my intellect, through my through my wit, whatever. I'm going to be able to assert the control here, and then that never really comes, right? The brute force seems to be the one that wins out in all these different encounters. It's a very pessimistic view of masculinity, right? It's very much in the the vein of of dominance being paramount, and that's. I, it's maybe a little too black and white, you know, in some ways. 
but I think Peckinpah definitely wants to make the point that we all have these tendencies inside of us, right? We all have this dark side and that's probably the most obvious interpretation. It's probably the right one. It's hard for me to see David as the primary aggressor here. I mean, I, I really think that he has some existing aggression in him, certainly, and he, he's not as cowardly as maybe his wife thinks he is. He's just much more selective about who he wants to confront. But he's also, I think, placed in situations he's just not used to, right? I mean, people that live in more of a rural setting or more of a country setting tend to just have a different disposition or a different attitude and, you know, not trying to generalize, but it's just a different way of life and it's a different way of interacting with people versus someone who maybe came out of a more urban area or more of an academic um, environment. So I think there's a period of adaptation for David where he's just trying to figure out like, you know, I, how am I supposed to respond here? These are people I've just met. These are people I'm going to have to uh, live around for a while if I'm going to stay here. So I want to try to be cordial. But at the same time, I do sense that there's aggression taking place. So what's the best way to respond uh, so I can keep the peace but also not completely uh, emasculate myself or completely devalue my own position or potential authority in the future. So it, the fact that he's just not out there yelling at him right after something happens is kind of understandable in a way. Uh, and, and maybe his desire to be cordial is just overwhelming everything else. But, you know, Amy is always pushing him to, to be more aggressive, right. To be more confrontational. And at certain points, I think he definitely needs to be, and, and he's too passive, uh, it's interesting that she kind of chalks everything up in terms of the horrible things that happen to his lack of aggression in that one moment about confronting those workers about the dead cat. Right. And it's really an unfair accusation, but at the same time, you kind of wonder, is she right? You know, like if you had stood up to them, would it diffuse the whole situation? Right. That's one of the, I think, the great strengths of this film is it does raise that question. What would have happened if he had been more confrontational and just, you know, make a kind of almost explicit point of saying, listen, uh, something seems to have happened here. I think it was you. Was it you? Or just put them on their knee on their heels a little bit. Would that have been enough to back off and then things go a different trajectory with him following that? And of course, does that then stop the probably the most controversial and the most frightening scene of the film, which I think is the rape scene? Yeah. Uh, would that never have happened had he done that, right? And the film doesn't answer it, and I think that's where it maybe doesn't get too black and white because it does raise some of these these questions that it does not guess necessarily give us a perfect answer of understanding how this would or wouldn't have played out. Um, but I will I will push back. I think I'm gonna. Say, I think that David is the instigator in many of the things, not to say that there isn't others that have aggression as well. Obviously, the character of Tom Hedden, uh, played by Peter Vaughn, who is obviously a very famous character actor from, from England, uh, is quite aggressive, right? And I think no matter what David would have done, no matter what anybody was going to do in that final scene, he was going to go crazy uh, the way he did. But... Before we get to that, just looking at the relationship of David and Amy, you can see a, a real kind of intense anger that he has towards her, and it's it's boiling up constantly. Uh, you know, she comes in, she makes a little joke about his, uh, she changes one of the, the plus sign to a minus sign in his math equation, and he has this kind of passive-aggressive thing, like, what the hell, she think I'm just doing a game here and stuff like that? So you see those kinds of comments, those kinds of actions take place, while he's not ever actually necessarily going the extra step, it's all within him. And you see him, I think, in conversations with her being pretty belittling, pretty demeaning. And if I can, maybe we should talk about that controversial rape scene, you know, just to exp uh, expound upon it. Because it's been, for nearly half a century now, something that's been deeply debated and with great vehemence on both sides. Uh, whether it's exploitative or whether it's not, whether it's got a sort of um, oh uh, a myth, a rape myth involved or not. I mean, there's so many different questions about that scene. 
Uh, but it is truly uncomfortable. But one of the things I think that people don't often comment upon is that as it's happening, she's being raped by Charlie and then later on uh, by the, uh, the the other friend that comes in and joins. Uh, I, I'm just blanking now on the name of the character off the top of my head uh, that comes in uh, in the uh, midway through. I think it's, uh, but, I think it's Scott uh, is the character's name. Oh, yes, that's right. Yep. So Norman Scott. Uh, so, yeah, so they, you know, they, they cut back to she has images of David during it. And not images like uh, reassuring, like he'll be here to protect me. More of almost like she's associating him with the rape that's taking place. Uh, at least that's the way I, I've understood, uh, inter- interpreted those edits myself. That I think it shows that she even sees David as an aggressor and as a threat of sorts to her and to her autonomy. Uh, I, I guess I didn't see it that way. I, I thought maybe it was more like a defense mechanism that she was trying to imagine him there instead of her aggressor as a means of protection. Uh, but I, I could see it being interpreted the other way. Um, yeah, it's a really rough scene. I, I It's a pretty nauseating scene. It, it's definitely the, the bit that's talked about most with this film and caused it to have, a, I think, an X rating upon its release, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and also, uh, like four minutes cut out in most of the releases of it too. Yeah, so the U.S. release was was trimmed back, and you know, just looking at it from a standpoint of you know, is this too graphic? Is it exploitative? By today's standards, right? It's not a terribly graphic scene. I think what makes it so traumatic is the filmmaking, just the editing in particular. And the the quick cuts, the flashes, especially later in the film. And the score. Yeah. The score, too. Yeah, especially later in the film when she's reliving that at that church uh, social. The editing, it, it's like being stabbed, right? We're just getting these flashes, these violent full-frame full, full frame flashes of what occurred. And it's very subliminal. And I think our mind really kind of fills in the gaps, right? And what we're seeing on screen is is horrific and disturbing in and of itself, but it it is not, I think, as graphic as some people uh, seem to paint it. But there, it's a scene that's very much open to interpretation, I think, and and how Amy reacts to the rape at certain points can be seen as problematic, uh, and, and that has been a big point of debate as well in terms of, you know, is she submitting? Is she not submitting? You know, is this a defense mechanism? Is she, uh, you know, taking some level of enjoyment out of this? I mean, it's, it's really, I, I think any way you want It's wanna, very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable, and any way you want to dissect it, it's a horrifying scene. And, and the, the fact of the matter is this character is her character is being raped, right, and being assaulted. And you really can't get around that, and that's really the point of the scene. And what struck me again watching this film was just the fact that the huge orgy of violence at the end is not informed at all by the rape in terms of David knowing about it. David does not know that occurred, right? I mean... Right. He's yeah. never told that, that occurred. And you would expect that that would have been the fuse that that would have exploded the bomb so to speak and released his his pent-up rage, but it's a very interesting choice yeah, the, not to reveal that to David's character. Yeah, the violence at the end is not a revenge. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating way of 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 framing the violence because that I think makes it all the more despairing and uh, exhausting for us as an audience, right? There's not a catharsis that comes from it. Um, you know, on the before we get into maybe talking about that that final climactic scene uh, with the with the home invasion, that rape scene, I think, you know, it's 
I say this as somebody who has worked with a number of people who have been raped. I say this as somebody who's had a family member, a very close family member who's been raped. And so I don't say this lightly. I, I, I don't, you know, begrudge anybody who doesn't like the scene because I don't think you're supposed to like the scene. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be disturbing. Yeah. And it is all those things. And I think that's why it's very successful. I think it's a successful scene because it is showing a very despairing and dark part of reality. And whatever you try to do to interpret it, there's no good interpretation, right? And I think part of the genius of the way it was set up was to have that little moment in which Amy appears to be enjoying the uh, the rape itself, right? That whether it's a sub, out of submission, out of a, a complicated emotional response to Charlie, because she clearly does, prior to that scene, have seemed to be a little bit coy with him and a little playful with him. They had some past history, a sexual history together. Uh, so it is very painful, but also recognize like within a second of that seeming enjoyment is a tear running down her face as well. Yeah. And so it, it just is such a complicated mixture of emotions and physical reality that you are just, I think, overwhelmed by it and trying to make sense of what you're seeing. And at the end of the day, I think the film's set up so that you really can't make sense of it, which is precisely the point, right? This doesn't make sense. It does not make sense to rape. And it is a, a grave evil. I mean, there's no other way around it. And the film, I think, shows it. And then as you maybe even just sort of have this sense of, well, that little bit was maybe tolerable and we got through it, all of a sudden the second uh, you know man shows up and enters in and it, it goes down a road where even now Charlie is confronted with the reality of what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just becomes all the more painful having to see it happen again, right? Uh, and so I think that is, you know, just uh, as awkward as it is to say this, it is a triumphant scene in terms of setting out to show a very ugly reality, but showing it, I think, in a very realistic way, all uh, ugliness included. I think that's a good way to, to characterize it. I mean, it's it's... It remains profoundly disturbing, and that means it's probably effective, right? Because that's how rape should be. That's the kind of emotion I think it should probably evoke in an audience. You know, you should be disturbed. You should be nauseated. You should be disgusted. uh, You should be confused in some ways as to, you know, why is this happening? Well, how can anyone do this to to another person? So, um, yeah, it, it is successful in that way, and it is kind of an accomplishment that it manages to do that without without really being overly graphic i mean the the shots are are very much dependent on close-ups and and again the editing is is extremely important and you mentioned the tear you know the the details of how susan george's hair uh kind of lays across her face and and those brief slow motion shots too when she's being struck and uh yeah it's it's pretty effective filmmaking right and and i'm not surprised it remains controversial but i well let's put it this way i think go ahead no i i was just gonna say I, i i really have a hard time thinking of another uh comparable scene in a film that at least uh, is as powerful or as affecting uh, in, in terms of a rape scene. Yeah, I mean, maybe the only other one I can think of is from the the French film Irreversible, Irreversible that came yeah. out back in yeah. 2002, which was very painful and ugly as well. But it doesn't, it didn't arouse the same kind of controversy this one is, and it's nowhere near as complicated as this one is. Uh, and it's, it's, um, I think I just think that one struck me as kind of. I don't know what your point is. I mean, this one feels like it's trying to convey an actual message. The other one, I think, just showed you, like, hey, look, rape is terrible, but who didn't know that going into it? This one kind of kind of forces us to think about what's the reality and what's the consequence of something like that taking yeah. place. And for those that would say this is um, exploitative, I would just encourage people to look at really a lot of other films of this era because – 
rape was depicted in a lot of movies, sadly, in the 1970s, particularly B-movies and exploitation movies, uh, as a, I don't know why they did it this way, but as a way of getting nudity into some of these movies that would be in grindhouse theaters. And it just strikes me as if you look at some of those other kinds of movies, how they depict it is so much more offensive, but also so much less impactful than this, right? There doesn't seem to be controversies, controversies coming out of a lot of the other movies of this era in terms of its depiction of uh, rape. But this one does, and even all these years later, still does have that kind of, oh my gosh, what am I watching? I don't understand. I don't like this. Uh, that other films don't. And so that's where I'd say just if you have a sense of how other films have depicted this, you would see that what Sam Peckinpah is doing here is something very different and certainly I don't think deserving of exploitation uh, labels. I don't say it isn't deserving of controversy, Mm -hmm. but I I do think that it it doesn't deserve um, condemnation the way some people might want to give to it. Well, maybe, Matt, we can then uh, just turn our attention here to that that orgy of violence, as you described it earlier, that comes at the end of the film. Um, The film obviously progresses uh, following this very quickly. It seems to accelerate. But like you said, the the progression of the events following it have nothing to do actually with the consequence of the rape itself. The only sense is that David and Amy leave the church gathering early because she's having these flashbacks and... He has no clue what's going on, and in the process, winds up uh, hitting Henry Niles, who we learn uh, had killed Janice, Tom Hedden's uh, daughter, uh, but unintentionally uh, having killed her. And he takes him into the house as Tom Hedden and then Charlie and the friends find out that they're there. Then this siege takes place at the house, and this very, very prolonged, violent scene takes place. so maybe it's worth kind of describing that scene or talking about how that scene's filmed. I'm just curious, before we jump into it, have you seen the 2011 remake that Rod Lurie did of Straw Dogs? I, I still haven't. I remember your, you telling me about it and th- you saying it wasn't that bad. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie. Uh, it's it's transposed to America. It takes place, I think, in Mississippi. The ending scene is very similar in terms of like a lot of the events, how they, they play out, you know, the, the trapping of the man in the window. It's a little different. Like instead of using the wire, he uses a nail gun, you know, stuff like that. But what I found so fascinating about this versus that film in particularly this scene at the end is that this one plays like a horror film and that one plays like an action film. Mm. And uh, actually, maybe when I was watching this movie, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie over the past 20-some years since I first saw it, uh, probably like half a dozen times or so. And when I watched it again in anticipation of our conversation here, uh, I would say that it occurred to me like, wow, I never think I ever saw this before, but this is a horror movie. It's it's a home invasion horror film. Yeah. I didn't realize that's what it was, but I think that's almost the right way to look at and interpret this film. And the final scene is so excruciating and not terrifying in like a suspenseful way, but just terrifying in a sense of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is going to happen. Like you just see the inevitable force taking place and all these other thoughts of how maybe, oh, well, this person shows up, but no, they're going to get, the major shows up. Maybe he's going to resolve it. Doesn't he gets killed? Uh, you think, well, maybe uh, they'll be able to stop them from breaking in. No, they start to break in. I mean, it just becomes so excruciatingly, terrifyingly sad and depressing. Uh, but it really feels to me like a horror film. I don't know if you have any reactions to it, though. It's a good way to characterize it. I, it, it watching it again it struck me how subjective the camera's point of view is throughout that whole sequence. I mean, there's shots outside in particular of the aggressors that are very stylized. You know, the smoke machine is, is working overtime and there's really horror type lighting, a lot of backlighting and silhouettes and, and unrealistic light sources, right? It's not, the film overall has a very staged, very theatrical. Yeah. has a very, 
naturalistic style to most of the film, even documentary style. There's a fair amount of handheld camera work and has a very 70s kind of aesthetic to it, uh, fairly gritty. But that ending scene is, yeah, it's much more theatrical, much more stylized. And again, the editing comes into play in a major way, just uh, the quick cut reaction shots and the the editing's very chaotic, the camera work's chaotic, but not in such a way that, that it's unintelligible or, or uh, disorienting. Um, I, we kind of know where people are. We understand the geography. I, it, it struck me again, too, that they spend a lot of time throwing rocks through windows, and I, I just kind of wonder, why, why did it take them so long to actually go through a broken window and get into the house? But <laughs> I guess we had to kind of uh, build up the suspense and granted, it is a stone house, and and a lot of the windows seem to have bars over them. But maybe that's just a nitpick. I, but it, you're right; it's it's not shot for action. It's not shot for uh, for montage. Uh, it's shot as kind of a stream of consciousness sequence. Just we're we're under attack. You know, this is an assault, and uh, it's coming from all directions, and and we don't know. Uh, who's going to survive? And at this point, it really feels like anything could happen in this movie, and and that really amplifies the suspense as well, and amplifies the power of that whole sequence. I think one of the great successes of that scene is Dustin Hoffman's performance. Uh, obviously, the editing, as you described it, is is quite important because it gives a sense of geography, but also kind of a sense of being overwhelmed. I mean, you do get the sense of just they're circling around and there is no way out, right? So, I mean, that that staging is very effective, and I think the, the editing goes a long way in terms of creating that effect. Um, the sound design also goes a long way, I think, in that too, just the hearing of the voices outside and the sound of the breaking glass, you know, just feel like something's encroaching upon you constantly throughout that scene. But when you're in that house and you're seeing how Hoffman moves his performance through that scene, it's really impressive because David starts out thinking, well, you know, listen, there's just, we need to get the doctor, we need to get the constable here, and that's it, right? It, 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 you know, just get out of the house, and that's all there's going to be to it. And, you know, he takes a little bit of a stand, but never expecting it to become, I think, what it becomes, and you then wonder, okay, would he have taken the stand? Would he not have taken the stand? But he did take, did take that stand, and it's like he felt like, I cannot, I cannot walk back anymore. And you see how he becomes committed to that decision, even as Amy's saying, let them take Niles out of the house. She's, she's willing to let go of him and get out of this, right? And David all of a sudden becomes, I will not let violence happen against this house, right? He, he becomes very com- committed to this. Not realizing they've already invaded, they've already violated his wife, but he's he's has a stand here as if he's got to protect this house that's already been infiltrated prior to this without his knowledge, and you see him even become aggressive towards Amy as she's willing to try to oh, let them in and get this resolved by just taking Niles away. He slaps her. He makes it clear that if she uh, if they get in, they're going to kill everybody. Right. Uh, so you just see this incredible movement within his performance that you believe what he does, right? And there's nothing in the staging of it, the performing of the of the attack that he makes against everybody where you feel like he becomes an action hero. I mean, Tom Hedden shoots his own foot just by happenstance as he hits it, right? Uh, just small little things he knew, like about um, boiling the water and pouring on them. In many ways, you could say this is like a realistic depiction of the final scene of Home Alone, right? That's yeah. That's played for a comedic <laughs> effect. This is like this is like Home Alone, but if it actually happened in the real world, um, <laughs> I've, I've never really thought of this movie that way before. I'm, I'm sure someone else has to have made that connection already, though. Um, yeah, just it, it doesn't have the uh, the homeless, you know, snow shovel guy. So, right. <laughs> if only that guy had been there, we could have avoided this whole thing. He actually does uh, kind of look like no. uh, that Tom character, so there, there's a resemblance. <laughs> yeah, there is. You know, you're right. There is a little bit. So. <laughs> Uh, but I think, yeah, Hoppin, I think, is, is, deserves as much credit as Peckinpah for the success of that final scene. Yeah, he's great in that whole scene. I mean, his, he kind of devolves into this uh, 
animal in some ways, but you're right. He doesn't turn into an action hero. He, he, he doesn't come across as suddenly physically more capable than he should be. He's just kind of using his ingenuity and, and setting traps and, uh, but there's really a, a, a tooth and nail kind of clawing desperation to everything that happens too, especially that really final uh, fight with Charlie where he uses the the man trap or bear trap or whatever you want to call it that's over the fireplace. And, and, and that's established right away at the beginning of the film. <laughs> so you know that, oh, this thing. Yeah, you know that's going to be, that's going to come into play, yeah, right? There's you, no doubt that's exactly. going to be in the movie somewhere. It's set up to pay off later and, and it's not surprising when it's used, but that's not the end either, right? There's there's another aggressor after that, and and then Amy is is forced to join in uh, into the violence as well. And I, it's interesting you mention. I think that's yeah. You know, it's just interesting you mentioned that David the fa- the- slaps Amy at that one point, and there's so many ways you can interpret this movie. I mean, that's one of the things I think that makes it endure is just how much room there is to, to really parse through all this. I, I, I always saw that as he's trying to protect her in, in a weird way, right? He's trying to really uh, not to defend hitting a woman, just he's just trying to say, right, if they get in here, we're dead. And you have to understand that right now, and you need to help me. Yeah, I'd be honest with you, Matt. If I was in that situation, I'd have slapped her too. If I, if you're going to open the door, these men, I, I would slap her. Well, I mean, it's, it's not he, to say that it's, it's. I just would do it, though. I would. Well, he, he's just trying to protect her, and and he's trying to uh, force the reality of the situation upon her, and and she still has kind of this childlike view of everything. Of, well, just let them take him, and we'll be fine, sort of thing, and and. And Dave is the only one that really understands the consequences of that kind of decision. I mean, not only is Henry Niles' life uh, at stake, but obviously their own lives are as well. And uh, all these aggressors are horribly drunk, and they have lethal weapons. And, I, you know, the scene right I have to mention the scene in the bar right before this comes across as unintentionally funny to me anyway, where they just... They, they all go in there and they just all start drinking like furiously <laughs> right before they know they have to go out and look for, for the missing girl or whatever. It, it comes across as just bizarre and and unintentionally comedic or maybe it was intended to be comedic. Uh, they're just pouring down the whiskey and then on the way out they're grabbing multiple bottles for the road, you know. It's just like, like what what is wrong with this town? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I definitely don't think it was meant to be comedic. But you do think to yourself, okay, if your daughter's missing and you and she, you saw her go off with this man who was a child molester, why the hell are you at a pub? Yeah, why? You know? Why is I mean, everyone getting it, it all is a up when when you want your senses right. to be sharp? It's it's amazing. It shows the very destructive nature of of, of that of that group, yeah. right? Of the self destructive nature. You know, I think you know, the fact that you brought up, Matt, that Amy's the one that kills the final man is important because two of the five people that get killed in that scene, I guess it's maybe it's six, actually, if you include the constable, uh, that two of them are not killed by David, right? Uh, one of them is killed by Charlie. Charlie kills Norman uh, as they are uh, in the bedroom because Norman is, go- is, is ready to attack uh, Amy again, and so he kills him. Then David attacks Charlie and then kills him with this very ugly, you know, just stumbling down the stairs and then just happened to get the bear trap to slap over his head and kill him. But then that final guy who David had forgotten about, um, who had been injured but had not been killed, uh, comes out, attacks him, and then Amy has to shoot him to save David. So it doesn't show anybody as being like this perfect hero, right? And I think... This is maybe just a, a point where we could kind of talk about what else was going on in cinema at this time. It comes out in 1971. That's the same year. So it's a couple years after The Wild Bunch for Peckinpah. But that same year, you also had A Clockwork Orange, which was very much known for its depiction of violence. Dirty Harry's that same year. Uh, the French Connection is that same year. And all of them have this kind of gritty, 
uh, sordid kind of story and pretty strong depictions of violence. I think cinema was becoming much more graphic in its portrayal of violence at this time and hitting a new level of, of intensity with it. Of all of those films, this one I think has the most impact all these years later, not maybe as an overall movie, but certainly at least in terms of its depiction of violence, because it is showing violence, I think as a, it's a very anti-violent movie, right? Yeah. Um, and it's tricky to do that without kind of indulging in the thing you're condemning, because to be anti-violence, you often have to show violence, and so in a certain sense, you start to glamorize or glorify it. But because David never really becomes particularly good in his attack, uh, because it struggles, because he doesn't actually successfully kill every single one of them, right? Uh, it becomes clear that he isn't a victor in all this, that he's been broken and destroyed. And then it ends on that beat when he, he leaves. It's like he, he defends the house, but then he leaves and it's like, I don't have, I don't, he's driving with Henry and he realizes, I don't know where to go. I don't have a home anymore. Right. And so, it shows violence as being counterproductive and it shows violence as just destroying. And I think that's part of why this film, I would say is more successful than the other ones I just mentioned, at least in this regard. I'll bring up a clockwork orange again, because I, that I would argue that that probably is more memorable to a lot of people just in terms of violence, but even. I, well, it certainly is culturally there's a lot more quotation yeah. and reference to A Clockwork Orange than this. But watching Straw Dogs again, I, I was actually reminded by A Clockwork Orange, not even remembering that it came out the same year as this. Uh, just aesthetically, it has some similarities in terms of uh, some of the camera angles and Dutch angles and low angle shots, lens choices. I suppose just the fact that they're both set in in England is probably... Uh, part of it too and, and there's kind of a rural quality to both those films uh, or just at least portions of Clockwork Orange so yeah it's pretty interesting that those came out in the same year and and there seems to be some level of connection between these two films um, I, you know one, one thing that occurred to me too is just the fact that you know David Warner's character Henry Niles he he is a violent character as well, right? And even though uh, it, it may be unintentional violence, uh, David is unknowingly defending a murderer, right? And that's a detail right. that it, that David is not privy to, but we as the audience are. So uh, that's another interesting dimension that that the the script contains or that that peck and paw is kind of reinforcing that again no one is really free of sin here so to speak and we may try to help and defend each other but in a way we're all culpable uh we all have this tendency to to commit violence within us it's a pretty cynical and, and pessimistic view but there there is that glimmer of hope at the end uh where they are driving off you know, trying to find their way home. It's, uh, that's one thing that, Oh wow. I never thought that I never thought of that as hopeful at all. Well, <laughs> uh, to us at the, well, I, as, as viewers, I don't think it's hopeful. Uh, but for David Sumner, he seems to have a glimmer of hope. His character has a glimmer of hope. He seems to be very satisfied with the fact that he was victorious. Uh, but I'm not trying to say that the film is supposed to in inspire hope in the audience. Quite the contrary, I would say. You're right. I guess that is uh, another part of the complexity because David, I mean, right before that final attack from the, the one surviving member, kind of sits and looks over the, the destroyed house and says, I killed them all. And he does seem to still think of himself as maybe being a hero, even though I think the film says, well, this is the cost of being a hero, right? And it certainly doesn't look like it's worth paying it. Yeah, as I said, I think it's ultimately a pessimistic uh, message and a very dark message. But David's character, I still struggle with him 
being seen as the primary aggressor. You know, I think he is, he has aggressive tendencies, but he would not have committed these acts unless his territory was encroached on by these hooligans. Right. Uh, so ultimately it is a reaction to threats that he is facing, but that's not to say that he's, he doesn't have aggressive tendencies innately regardless, but yeah, it, it's a pretty bleak, uh, bleak ending. I mean, it's just a bleak film overall, obviously. Well, and that gets to its title, which is one of the best titles of a movie I think I've ever come across, Straw Dogs. Obviously, initially, you don't have any idea what it means. It doesn't immediately refer to anything. They don't reference it in the film at all. They don't shoehorn in some quote or some uh, obvious connection. Uh, So you'd have to know what they're referencing to get it at all. Uh, But I think at the same time, the image of a straw dog is so vivid in your mind that you get what the movie's saying about that title, right? And the, the obviously the the ancient Chinese idea was that there was these ceremonials where you'd have str- you'd make dogs out of straw, you'd have it be a part of a ceremonial, but once it was done, you just th- would throw them away. And uh, the idea was that this was kind of how humanity is in the world, uh, and this is kind of a, one of the more foundational texts of some Eastern spirituality uh, in that strain of thought coming out of this. And I think it, it obviously is very bleak and the film's title really does just let you know what kind of movie you're watching. I would agree. So looking at the disc, Matt, uh, I've got the Blu-ray and I think uh, years ago when I upgraded, I gave you the DVD, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah. So I've still got that out of print version. I, I had the old MGM dvd uh before that but i I haven't gotten the blu-ray upgrade so i I think it is a new a new transfer if i'm not mistaken so it looks pretty good i hope yep it's a it's a new 4k digital transfer uh and it does look very good it's 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 nice presentation of the film and of course as we discovered in anticipation of this this movie doesn't appear to be available on streaming anywhere yeah Uh, that's not just that you can't get on netflix but no iTunes, Prime, anything. Can't rent or download it anywhere, it seems like. So perhaps this has been canceled uh, as part of cancel culture. I don't know. That or, you know, I was thinking about that, trying to figure out why that's the case. I, maybe the rating issue is problematic. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think ultimately this film is considered unrated, the uncut version, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But I think some streaming services don't allow at least unrated or NC-17 equivalent type films. I don't know if that's, uh, if that's the issue, but yeah, it's strange. I don't know if there's maybe a rights issue just for streaming. I mean, obviously Criterion has the rights to, to distribute it physically, it, but it is odd that it's not available. Yes. Yeah, so anybody who wants to see this movie has to find themselves a physical copy of it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it's a really good disc. I um, you know the 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 supplements on it are very good. There's some really good interviews. I really like the Susan George interview. Uh, she talks about her part and her experience with the film. It's well worth a watch for anybody who wants to understand how she interprets it. Particularly, her her comments on the rape scene uh, are very insightful and thoughtful as well. And then, a really good really good audio commentary by Stephen Prince uh, that delves into this particular production, but also goes into just the the era of cinema and Sam Peckinpah himself uh, very, very nicely. So I would recommend that as a listen for anybody here. Um, yeah, he so does great commentaries. Highly recommended release. Yeah, Stephen Prince is some of the best Criterion commentaries. He's done quite a few for Kurosawa films. Uh, he wrote that book, um, Warrior's Camera, I think it's called, on Kurosawa. Yeah, he's great. He's absolutely great. Whenever he's on a disc, I always think, all right, way to go. Yeah, it's it's really like a a full semester film course, you know, in one commentary typically. Well, Matt, we come to our question of the evening then. Do you think Straw Dogs belongs in the Criterion Collection? I would say definitely yes. You know, I, I think this is an important film 
Uh, Sam Peckinpah is an important director. You know, you could say that Wild Bunch is, is the better film. I, I personally find this one more memorable. I, I think it's, it's a very strong uh, film that evokes a lot of questions, a lot of debate, which really is the kind of film that I, I, I um, think is, is important and, and something we need more of these days. So I would say definitely include it. I obviously, yeah, I don't think you can disagree. I don't obviously say this as like a, an easy to watch film because it isn't. It's not a film I like to watch regularly. Oh yeah, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, but it, whenever I do watch it, I don't regret having chosen to watch it. I know it's going to demand a lot of me, but it's going to be worth it for me uh, because it is a thought provoking film. It's obviously an excellently made film. Uh, it is, I think, truly a great film, but I also would go further and say it is important. It's an important documentation of its time. It's an important representation of Sam Peckinpah. Uh, important representation of Dustin Hoffman as an actor. I think he, often we think about his parts like Rain Man or The Graduate, but this is one of his better performances too. And it shows some of the range yeah. in his work that most people might not expect of him. Uh, as well. So I really do think this is a, a good film, an important film, and deserves to be in the collection. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for our conversation this evening. Please join us next month when Matt and I will be discussing Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, which will be premiering in November. Thank you, and keep collecting.